Hey, welcome. Good morning to worship. It's, uh, did you notice it's chilly out there? <laughs> uh, I don't know about you, but maybe some of the bigger joints in your person were not working as nimbly as they used to this morning because of the cold. Perhaps you were beginning to experience, either through climate or through age or through a whole season of bad choices, maybe you're starting to experience resistance. And so I want to talk about this morning, resistance. That's actually the title of our sermon this morning. And I want to start in our sermon series in the book of Joshua. I want to start this morning by actually consulting the words of the half-brother of Jesus. So if you've got your Bible, turn to the book of Joshua. We'll be in chapter 9. But as you're turning there, I want to read us a passage that I think is introductory and instructive for what we're going to talk about this morning. It's in James. It's verses 2 through 4 of the first chapter. Probably the earliest little epistle we have in our Bible, probably as early as A.D. 45, James says this, count it all joy. So there's a, an opportunity to change our minds about a thing. We come into this world assuming and defaulting in our understanding about something. And so he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That is, when you encounter, when you experience resistance. See it for what it is and decide, count, oh, this is a joy. This is good for me. That's not our typical nor default behavior. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith, that is the resistance that we encounter, produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect. That doesn't mean sinless. That means fully completed, uh, fully matured, fully orbed the way you were created to be and complete, lacking in nothing. So the half-brother of Jesus wants us to understand that resistance is a part of our life that God wants us to enjoy and experience when we encounter it. So this morning, we're going to look at an Old Testament narrative, not a New Testament epistle that helps us to understand resistance. We say this all the time, but Old Testament narratives are a declaration about God by God. And from those narrative stories, we can extract truths that apply to our lives. Now, we as a society, we as a culture, even we as individuals, we don't much like resistance. We're the kind of people and culture, we like, we like cardio workouts and we like aerobic activity, sometimes in the actual discipline of physical fitness, but more than that, just in terms of always being busy and doing things. Yes, we like cardio from an exercise physiology standpoint, but really, we just like the frenetic and the hectic. In, our, in a sense, in our time and in our space, busyness has become the new justification. It's the middle of November, perhaps you've noticed, and so holidays are upon us. Things get busier and busier. And if you haven't driven an automobile up and down a thoroughfare in Tyler, Texas, Apparently, everyone is experiencing the same level of busyness. And so you'll ask someone, hey, how are you? What will they say? Busy. Crazy busy. Oh my gosh, I've never been busier. What does that mean? It means I have worth, meaning, value, and significance because I'm doing stuff. You very rarely hear people say, how are you doing? And they go, you know what? I am face down before my God in the Proverbs. <laughs> what? Don't you have things to do? Like, come on already. We really like activity, but 
True exercise physiologists, they do exist. They're out there in the wild somewhere. They'll tell you for real change, the big muscles have to get broken down and they have to get rebuilt with greater tone. That's what resistance training does. Now, clearly, I'm not an advocate for either cardio or for resistance training physiologically. I'm saying spiritually and at the soul level. I say this all the time, but resistance training prepares us, equips us, readies us to deal with the highs and the lows of life, not if, but when they come. Save the risen Lord Jesus, nobody ever encountered more resistance in their life for the gospel than the apostle Paul. And once while Paul is sitting in prison, he writes this letter to the church at Philippi and he says in chapter four, verses 11 and 12, not that I'm speaking of being in need for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. That guy had some serious resistance training. But he said, through all that, I've learned to see it through God's eyes. I've learned to understand it for what it was. It was making me into who I was created to be. And then if you want a quick resume of his resistance, do a quick scan when you aren't busy of 2 Corinthians 11 and see all the things that he encounters, shipwrecks and stonings and beatings and floggings. He went through it all. And in those times we see in the apostle Paul, he thrived. But candidly, and confessionally, we as the people of God in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament, we've done better spiritually in times of struggle than we have in times of prosperity. But we have been called to understand that God leads us through seasons of training and preparation so that like his half-brother James says, we will be completed, fully baked Christians. So how are we just supposed to think about resistance? Not if, but when it comes into our lives. Well, we're supposed to see it through God's eyes and that makes us ready for our big idea today. And it goes like this. Resistance training builds the body of faith. And we're going to see that in a wonderful passage in our Old Testament, Joshua chapter 9. We've been studying Joshua all fall semester. Our series theme comes right out of the name of Joshua, which means God is our salvation. Now, let me bring you up to speed super quickly. We started this back in September. Moses has led the children of Israel out of Egypt through the wilderness wanderings because they did not trust God to enter the land when they should have. And so 40 years goes by. Finally, Moses dies, hands off the reins to Joshua. Joshua leads them into the promised land across the Jordan River as God is in their midst and in their presence. So let me start reading chapter nine, verse one, as the conquest of Canaan, Yahweh's land has begun. Chapter nine, verse one says, as soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland and all along the coast of the great sea, that's the Mediterranean, toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Mosquito Bites and the Parasites. And, no, that's not, that's not in there. And the Hivites and the Jebusites, when they heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. There's a lot going on here. This is a story that I really want you to play behind your eyelids if you can stay awake. Joshua has led the children of Israel across the Jordan River. The first thing they did is they encountered Jericho. And Jericho was an incredible feat. God did a wondrous, miraculous, fantastic thing. The walls come and tumbling down and Jericho's captured. 
They proceed to go to Ai where they're gonna have a battle there, but there's some problems there. They suffer their first and only defeat. Finally, they do capture Ai. What are they doing? They're trying to drive from east to west to cut the land in half in the conquest, and then they'll turn their attention and drive south, finish off all those Canaanite tribes, and then they'll turn and go back north and finish all of them. So they're cutting a wedge right through the backbone of the land of Canaan. They've taken Jericho, they've taken Ai. But before they go to spot number three, which we'll learn about in a moment, they go 30 miles north to a place called Shechem. It's 30 miles north. It's 3,000 feet higher in elevation between Mount Gerizim in the south, Mount Ebal in the north, and they there pronounce the blessings and the curses of God's law. Joshua makes them all wait while he handwrites out the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 5 through 26, on stone tablets. And apparently, two or three million people gathering in a valley on two mountainsides gets national attention. And so the rest of the nations, all these seven nations, see this, but they don't respond like the people of Jericho did. You remember Jericho and Rahab in chapter two? It says, we've heard about you guys. We know what your God did at the Red Sea. We know what your God did to the kings on the other side of the Jordan. Our hearts melt like water. We know that this land is Yahweh's and that he has given it to you. And so she says, deuces Jericho, I'm going with Israel. But these kings, all the ones that are gathered from the central part of Israel, all the way up the north along the Mediterranean coast as far as Lebanon, they all decide we're all enemies, but we now have a common enemy in this invading nation called Israel. We know what they're going to do. We've seen what they did to Jericho. We've seen what happened at Ai. We detect a weakness. Yes, they had some incredible victory at Jericho, but they lost at first at Ai. We may be onto something. And so they put their foot in the ground and they say, no. We understand, and you'll see why in a moment, that judgment is coming from their God on this land, but we will stand and fight. Rather than be slaughtered, <laughs> we will try to stop this. Now that reminds us a lot, by the way, of the very end of our Bible in the book of Revelation, when holy, righteous judgment pours from God and the wicked still clench their fists and say, no, we will not have this justice against ourselves. So the text is very interesting here. Chapter nine, again, at the end of verse one, all these nations, they heard of this. What is it exactly that they heard of? It's a strange thing. We don't think about this very often, but apparently these nations all sent a delegation to Shechem, to that valleyed area between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. All these Canaanite nations see the, oh, what's the theological term? The hubbub, the kerfuffle, the dust up. And so they send messengers to go to that place to find out what this was all about. And apparently they read what was going on in Deuteronomy because Joshua has plopped down and written the entire thing on stone tablets. Listen to what they would have read had they sent a delegation to Shechem. And we believe that they did because later they're going to quote from this almost verbatim. This is Deuteronomy chapter seven, verses one to five. God speaking to Moses who writes it down and now Joshua writes it down after the battle of Jericho and Ai. Joshua has written a new copy of this in his hand. It says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. When the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. Now, if you're a Hivite, you're reading that and going, that sounds like a bad day. 
And we saw what happened in Jericho. We saw what happened at Ai, not on our watch. The text continues. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. Whoa. So these Canaanite nations all go, hey, we don't usually get along, but this is a problem. They're going to destroy our very way of life. We got to do something. And then they would have kept reading. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 10. God says, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. Now, there's a little bit more there in Deuteronomy 20 where it's when you encounter a city in a far distant country, not the ones that are in Canaan, for those are to be devoted to destruction because God's wrath is being poured out on the wickedness of the Canaanites that's been ripening for 400 years. But if there's a country or a, a city that's way far out there and they will accept peace and treaty, then you can approach them. And so these people apparently read that, they read God's word and they take it to heart and they act accordingly. Verse three, but when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part, okay, so you've got this confederacy of all these other seven Canaanite nations that are gonna band together. One of those nations is the Hivites. The Hivites have four little city-states. One of those city-states is the people of Gibeon. And the people of Gibeon go, yeah, no, we ain't doing that. We see how that whole thing goes. We're not going to participate. We're going to take matters into our own hands. And so they develop an elaborate and cunning ruse. They, on their part, acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended. Verse five, with worn out, patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes and all the provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua. So let me just make sure we understand. The plan of God through Joshua was to come into the land and strike east to west, the direction of judgment, the direction of redemption. Hit Jericho, then take Ai, renew the covenant with God. All the inhabitants hear of that. Now it's time to go to the next stop over, which is going to be Gibeon. The Gibeonites know this. Joshua doesn't know who those people are. They just know that the next stop as they drive from east to west is gonna be Gibeon. These people try to be proactive and they come in. And so they disguise themselves with an elaborate ruse, old wineskins, old bread, old clothes, old sandals, old traveling pouches. And they're gonna now try to force the issue. Verse six, and they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal. So this is only, uh, Gibeon is only about six miles from Jerusalem. It's about 15 miles from Gilgal. That's it, the headquarters. They've come down from Shechem back to Gilgal. It's only about 15 miles from Gilgal. They said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country. So now make a covenant with us. I mean, how's that for closing the deal? Hi, my name's Eric, let's get married. Like, whoa, 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 we just met. They're super aggressive and that should have been a tip off. It should have been a red siren going off spiritually, but they're operating in their senses. We're from very far away. Quick, press hard, third copy's yours, let's cut a deal. 
Now, at least the people of Israel have a slight check in their spirit. Verse 7, but the men of Israel said to the Hivites, the text wants us to make sure we understand, these are Hivites, and they live about 15 miles away from where they're currently headquartered. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us then. How can we make a covenant with you? Well, wait a minute. What if you're our next door neighbors? We can't make a covenant with you. We're here to kill you and your families. (laughs) Right? They said to Joshua, we are your servants. Did they really answer the question? No. They resort to humility and flattery because that works. And Joshua said to them, who are you? And where do you come from? Joshua's not buying it yet. Who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, from a very distant country. Oh, you should have said very to begin with because now we get it. First, we're from a far country. Oh, but we're from a very distant country. Oh, okay. And your servants have come because of the name of the Lord, your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of the Heshbon, and also to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtarot. That's interesting. We know all about what you guys and your God, but they don't mention Jericho and they don't mention Ai. Why? Because then they would have given up their cover. That's real close. That just happened a matter of days ago. So they referenced something that happened 40 years ago with the children of Israel coming out of Egypt across the Red Sea and what happened weeks and weeks ago when they were still in the land across the Jordan. And they mention, we know about the Lord, your God. Different than what Rahab says in chapter two. Now, this is where it's so dangerous. The people of God are always super quick to receive flattery when just the name of God gets dropped. You see this all the time, whether it's a politician or a celebrity. Oh, wait, did you hear him? Did you hear him? That football player, he pointed to heaven. He must be a believer. We should go on, we should get on board with him. Well, no, he was just pointing at the blimp. I mean, you, you don't know what that was. We're very quick to want someone to affirm our faith. Why? Because we're secretly insecure about our faith. The same thing happens here. So verse 11, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Okay, hold on, I get it. You guys wanna make a deal, but wait a minute. We've got some more exploring to do here. No, no, they're not deterred. They say, here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them and behold, they have burst and these garments and and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. It's so far away. Did we mention that? So the men took some of their provisions and here's the center of the chapter, but did not seek counsel or ask the mouth of Yahweh. They did not seek advice. The flattery and the ruse are beginning to work. There is a deception. By the way, the men of Israel, including Joshua, having just renewed the, com- the contract and the covenant with God, are relying on their own senses. They're applying simple common sense, but that's not what God wanted them to do. This was a spiritual matter. Way back in Numbers chapter 27, God spoke directly to Joshua through Moses. I want you to get this. God is talking to Moses and Joshua is right there. And God says, Moses, give some of the authority over the people to Joshua. 
And when Joshua has a question, you tell him that he can inquire of Eliezer the high priest and I will answer based on the, the breastplate or the ephod of the high priest. Tell Joshua that he's ever got a question, he can just ask. So Moses is like, yeah, he's here, he can hear you. Very quickly, Joshua does not want to trouble God with this trivial matter. I've got this. Joshua misunderstands. There are no trivial matters. Now, we might be quick to try to give some, some grace to the men of Israel that they're being deceived this way. No, no. It's because they're using common sense. Only their material senses, which can be deceptive. And if we're quick to give grace to them in this way, it's because we forget ourselves that our resistance, Paul says in Ephesians 6, is not against flesh and blood. Our resistance is spiritual. Now, why is Joshua chapter 9 about resistance? Because pretty much every scholar and commentator agrees. These first three cities represent the casserole of resistance that the person of God encounters. Any given moment of your life, 24-7, there are three different aspects of resistance that are coming against you. The world the flesh, and the devil. The world is just the system of society or culture that is Christlessness, that rejects the universal reign of God in Christ, rejects it. We will not have that man as king. We will not serve this God. That's the world system that 1 John talks about is opposed to the plan and the purpose and the peace of God. And the world system is always against you. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. James says, you will experience trial and resistance. Then there's the flesh. What Psalm 32 says, the thing inside of you, your spirit that is just broken, that just tilts to stern, that is trying to do your being harm because it's broken. The flesh wants that which is contrary to the spirit of God, says Galatians. It's always working to our detriment and to our damage. And then the third aspect is the devil our unseen enemy who works tirelessly to thwart the plan of God and to hamper the people of God. And so most scholars in Commentators will agree Joshua 9 is showing us Jericho representative of the world. There was plunder and there was wealth and there was such temptation. AI represents the flesh where you've got Joshua and the people of Israel acting in their own strength according to their own common sense without counseling God, without inquiring of God. And now we've got Gil, uh, Gibeon. Gibeon that represents the devil. This cunning deceit that is so subtle, it seems okay, but there's more going on here. But we've already said, resistance training builds the body of faith. So we are to see these different aspects coming at us all the time for what they are, to see them through God's eyes. But they're relying on common sense. What the Apostle Paul was saying in Galatians 4 are the elementary principles of the world that are not always correct. We are to be spiritually minded first, not sensory driven beings. So these guys talk about all of the different uh, evidences they have, the bread and the wine and the men of Israel are using their common sense, but they do not inquire of the Lord. They do not seek God. Now, by the way, the ruse was not actually that smart, if you think about it. These guys are apparently representative of a distant country, and they've sent an envoy that was ill-equipped. Hey, look at our gross, dry, funky, moldy bread, to which you go, why do you still have moldy bread? You should have thrown that away. And by the way, if you're an official ambassadorship, you travel with an entourage of servants that are going to continue to make good food for you. And by the way, when your wineskin bursts, do you know what you do with it? You throw it away. 
So they could have and should have said, you've got moldy bread. How come? Why don't you have fresh bread? You've got old wineskins. How come? You should have gotten rid of those. But they want to believe what they want to believe because we are self-strong, or so we think. But they do not inquire of the Lord, and they sampled these people's provisions. Verse 15, And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. So now Joshua rightly involves the rest of the leadership of all of Israel, and they now enter into covenant with these people of Gibeon. The deal is done. Verse 16, at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. Now, it doesn't tell us, how did the people of Israel figure out so quickly that the men of Gibeon were actually from Gibeon? I don't know. You get the sense that they like pressed down and they signed and then they threw off their old rags. They're like, and they were all wearing I heart Gibeon t-shirts, right? Like, uh, or they had a Gibeon bumper sticker on their camel. I don't know. But pretty quickly, the men of Israel are like, wait a second, y'all are from Gibeon. That's, right. That's our next target. Hey, wait a sec. And the deal is done. The ruse is blown. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. So it takes them three days to figure this out. And then it's a three-day walk to muster all of Israel from Gilgal to go 15 miles. And people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Chephirah, Beeroth, and Kiriath Yarim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. What are you doing? Now, are they frustrated that the leaders did not inquire of Yahweh? No. They couldn't take the plunder of Jericho, but they did take the plunder from Ai. And the Hivites represent four pretty loaded city-states that they could have plundered, but now we can't attack them? What are you guys doing? And so they're frustrated, and they murmur. They gongus moss. They chatter amongst themselves against the leadership. Verse 19, but all the leaders said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them instead. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. The people's idea is, hey, we were lied to, we were cheated, we were deceived, so the contract doesn't stand, right? Wrong. The covenant was based on the name of God, not on them. We are the ones who messed this up, and so we have to abide by it. And the leader said to them, verse 21, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them, the men of Gibeon, and he said to them, why did you deceive us? <laughs> You've asked your kids that? Or you've been asked that by your spouse? Why did you lie? Well, short answer, because we, we prefer survival to slaughter. We think our survival is our own project. And by the way, we all try to protect ourselves. We're all prone to it. Why did you deceive us? Saying we're from a very far country when you dwell among us. Now, therefore, you are cursed. And some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua. Again, these people, I'm convinced, had read the book. They'd never seen a deity speak with such specificity and precision. This God was allegedly speaking the names of the nations, and they believed the words of God. Because it was told to your servants for certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses. Moses? They, he's never been to the land of Canaan. How do they know about him? Because they read the book, and they saw what he was going to do. 
He commanded your servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. Now, what could they have done? They could have said, you have a God in Israel. He should be our God. We repent and we want to go in through the initiation rite to join the covenant community of Israel. They didn't do that. Verse 25, and now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation, for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. That is where the tabernacle would be stationed and where the temple would ultimately go. See, the people of Israel corporately and Joshua individually was experiencing resistance both at Jericho and Ai and Gibeon. And he wasn't equipped for it. But we are to understand resistance for what it is and we are to train for resistance because it builds the body of faith. So let me just give a few quick implications of how we take this narrative text and we can apply it to our everyday walking around lives. Number one goes like this. Make your mistake matter. Make your mistake matter. How can that possibly happen? Grace, when it happens, not if, when it happens, do the next wise thing and don't try to cover a wrong with another wrong or even a series of wrongs. Had Joshua, who made the deal, who wasn't supposed to make the covenant, then just said, well, oops, and start slaughtering Gibeonites, that would have brought down the very wrath of Yahweh. Do the next wise thing. See, the Gibeonites are gonna be working in the house of God. That is initially the tabernacle, later the temple. They will be exposed persistently as an entire people, more than anyone else except for the priests themselves to the law of God. They're gonna be cutting wood and bringing water. That is servicing the altar where sacrifice is happening, where atonement for sin is being made. They're gonna be the ones supplying the wood. They're gonna be the ones that are carrying the water to wash the basins, to wash off all the mess from around the altar. No one's gonna be closer to substitution, the innocent dying in place for the guilty than these Gibeonites. In Deuteronomy 7, God had told Moses, I do not want their form of worship to come in and corrupt nor corrode my people. And so what does Joshua do? He made his mistake matter. He put them right at the center of their worship in the tabernacle to be the ones who would have access to the teaching of the Levitical system and the priesthood. Later, their land of the Hivites, those four city-states, one of which is Gibeon. In Joshua 18, those tribal allotments are made for what the different tribes are going to get. That land is given to Benjamin, and specifically, those cities are given to be Levitical priest cities. The, the tribe of Levi wasn't given their own land. They were instead given cities all around the nation of Israel where the priests would be installed and they would teach the law of God and they would instruct on the character and the righteousness of God. Those very cities become Levitical cities. In 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 3, we hear that David actually stations the tabernacle in the city of Gibeon. The presence of God actually goes and the people of Gibeon are still 500 years later continuing to minister and serve there. Right before then, King Saul doesn't like the Gibeonites and so he slays many of them, breaking the covenant. And so God pours out wrath and judgment on Israel and for three years they have drought and famine that David, before he's king, has to avenge the Gibeonites and restore the covenant. God takes it very, very seriously. 
And then 500 years after that, the nation of Israel has gone off into exile, into Babylon, and they've come back. And in Nehemiah chapter 3, we learn that there are hundreds and hundreds of Gibeonites that have come back, that continue to serve in the temple post-exile, and that they are the ones who begin the construction under Nehemiah of the wall and ultimately the restoration of the temple. Make your mistake matter. God takes our messes and can make them marvelous, don't you see? Do the next wise thing. I think perhaps David might have had this in mind when he writes Psalm 84, verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Even after the Babylonian exile, the Gibeonites said, I would rather be a servant in the house of Yahweh than dwell back like we used to. Make your mistake matter. God's redemptive history is full of people that have stepped outside the obedience of faith, us included, and who have yet been the recipients of God's blessing. So let me summarize that one this way. God's sovereignty and God's grace are not thwarted by my stupidity. And that's very good news. God's grace and his sovereignty are never thwarted by my error, my sin, and my stupidity. Praise God. Second point goes like this. Enemy resistance is overcome with divine relationship. Not a formula, not a program, not a process. It's relationship. I know we're all very, very busy. We're all very busy and important, and we value most highly getting things done and with efficiency. But that's not to be our highest value. This is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding, Joshua, and do not lean on your own understanding, Eric, but we all tend to do so. And it is finite and it is frail and it is fickle. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. I love that. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths, not you. And he just says, acknowledge him. Be rightfully recognizing that he's there. You don't have to carve an ox and worship face down on the grit for 16 hours. Just be mindful of his presence, that he's good, that he's for you, that he loves you. There are times when God will allow the, ter the tyranny of the urgent to occur because it's an opportunity for us to be trained in resistance. And when those seasons come, not if, when they come, Wait on the Lord and draw near and be patient. Let me put it this way. Our circumstances don't ever rush God's hand beyond God's word. Our circumstances never rush God's hand beyond God's word. We get to have relationship and we get to trust him that we can be patient and wait on the Lord. I have never, ever, ever regretted sleeping on a major decision. I have libraries of books written on all of the errors I have made in haste because I feel like God's probably too busy because he's got bigger things to do, larger fish to fry because I assume that God is like I am as a parent, that I'm sometimes bothered by the persistent pestering of my children, present company accepted. But praise be to God, God is not like that. He loves the conversation and the dialogue. He wants to be acknowledged because he knows that that is what is best for me. We've been invited to know this God and simply be with him confidently to approach his throne of grace with confidence. Third point, 
And I will tell you transparently, when I was preparing for this and thinking through this, it was going to be something like inquire of the Lord or pray. But then I got convicted. And so the third point goes like this, love God. Because here's transparency. We don't pray to God and ask God and speak with God because we really don't love him. Not as we should. We love what he could possibly or probably do for us. But as long as things are clicking along, we're not acknowledging, we're not mindful. We don't love him, but he is a person. And we have this invitation, this opportunity to love him. I don't know what you think about when you think about God, but it is the most important thing about you. So let's think of him as he is and not just some mysterious force that's out there. We get to have communion and conversation with him. And so when resistance comes, train yourself to assume the best about him. We never, ever want to interpret God in light of our circumstances. Oh, well, this must be happening. God's disinterested or he's disappointed or he's just not even sort of paying attention. No, no, no. When resistance comes, train yourself to assume the best about him. Fourth point. Resistance training is a family matter. We don't get to do this alone. We aren't supposed to go through this life alone. We all need spotters and encouragers and sometimes even medics when we get it wrong. At the same time, I also know that you're not gonna bare your soul to every single person in this room, nor should you. If you're doing that, stop that, that's weird. But I highly exhort you I strongly encourage you and I vehemently invite you to pursue community in a spiritually healthy group of some sort. Remember whose you are. Remember who you are. You are his and you are one another's. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. You belong to one another. See, resistance training builds the body of faith. And here's the crazy gospel in this passage of Joshua 9. If you wanna see where you are in this text, you and I, we're Gibeonites, don't you see? We're Gibeonites, and look how our advocate defends us in his covenant. See, we come into this world enemies of God and children of wrath because of sin, just like the Gibeonites, under judgment, deceivers by nature, trying to scheme and swindle their way in. Our every inclination and every thought is bent towards self and our own preservation. We lie, we cheat, we steal, we exact vengeance upon one another. And that's just the nursery. <laughs> uh, and yet we see another Joshua. God is our salvation in Jesus. He meets us in the midst of our error, and yet he invites us by grace, not to be eradicated or slaughtered or exterminated, but because of his new covenant, though we are deserving of justice and judgment, it is not poured out on us, but it's actually poured out on him instead, the innocent for the guilty. And like the Gentile Gibeonites who were under just condemnation, we are invited to participate in pointing others to the sacrifice. No, not necessarily vocational full-time ministry like carrying water or cutting wood, but being involved in the priestly role of pointing people to the sacrifice. Jesus, we're told in Hebrews 6, stands as our advocate, just as Joshua did in chapter 9 when the people wanted to pour out judgment on the Gibeonites. Joshua said, no, no, for God's name, we can't do this. We will not do this. 
Hebrews 6 tells us that our Joshua, our advocate stands as his father. They are deserving of judgment. They are. But I have already taken the hit for them. And you are just. You've already poured out your wrath upon me. They're with me. We're good. And the father says, amen, my son. Well done. So we're Gibeonites. We get to invite people into grace and point them to the sacrifice. This is the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time together in this word. I do pray, God, that you would continue to illumine your word by your spirit and that you would encourage we, your people, through whatever seasons of resistance we encounter. And Father, if there are any here this morning who are still, in a sense, Gibeonites, trying to dress in a certain way to sneak their way into your covenant people, Father, I pray that you would expose those those cunning ruses, and you would simply show them Jesus, that they would step out of death into life, and that they would have purpose in service of your gospel. For the rest of us, Father, would you remind us who you are, what you've done in Christ to redeem us to yourself and also to one another. We would not take lightly this gospel, but in all our ways, we would be mindful to acknowledge you and to not lean on our own understanding. We know that is your plan for this world, that there would be millions and millions of people who would live just like Jesus. So we pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.